Is the Lord among us or not? It's a perennial question. The Israelites ask it in Exodus 17, verse 7, and we continue to ask it today. The Israelites, as we heard a few weeks ago, had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. We have been delivered from slavery to, to sin and from death by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And still we keep asking, is it really God? Is he really with us? Or is he just a figment of our imagination, something that we would like to believe in? Now, if you've asked those questions, take heart. As we heard in the first lesson, you are not the only one. God's people have been asking those questions for a long time. It seems that whatever God does to demonstrate his care for us, we keep asking for more. The better question than, is God among us or not, is what will it take to convince us that God is among us, remains with us, and cares for us? Having done quite a bit of wilderness camping myself, I sympathize with the Israelites stuck in the Sinai Desert with nothing to drink. It's not a hospitable environment. And it was a legitimate reason to worry, because proximity to a water source, as every camper knows, is a basic criterion for setting up a wilderness campsite. And yet, it's not like God had been neglecting his people since they left Egypt. Last week, we heard that God provided manna and quails for them to eat. And yet, even after that miraculous provision, Today, the Israelites are again worried about what's going to keep them alive, to the extent that they doubt God's presence among them. I'm so thankful for the biblical record of the Israelites in Sinai, for how like them we are, who, despite God's record of faithfulness, doubt him whenever we run into trouble. Exodus 17 reminds us that it's time to ditch the faithometer that trusts God only insofar as he delivers on our expectations. Though God cares for us, he has not promised us a trouble-free existence any more than he promised it to ancient Israel. Being unhappy is not a reason to doubt God. And believing in God is no excuse to remain unhappy as if faith required that, as if it were a mark of a Christian. No, though life on earth can feel like a journey through the wilderness, God has not forsaken us. He has delivered us from sin and death. He remains with us as he promised to the end of the age. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, part of our second lesson, reminds us of what that deliverance cost God in the person of Jesus Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God knows what it's like to suffer, even to the extent of Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our suffering, God has not left us alone, but suffers with us and stays with us every step of the way. And that is not the end of the story. Paul, writing to the Philippians, continues, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we find ourselves asking, Okay, God has done all that for me. What does that mean for me? What can I do? The first and best thing we can do is to turn our attention from ourselves and our concerns to Jesus and cheer. We can put our trust in him for our future and our salvation. We can thank him for the marvelous sacrificial victory he has won for us, which puts our current problems in perspective. We can remind ourselves that what, whatever suboptimal things are happening in our lives and in our world, God has won for us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Does that mean that our problems are really trivial and they don't matter? Certainly not. As a loving Father, God wants us to bring our requests to Him in prayer. But we do need to keep them in perspective and remind ourselves that God is not a good luck charm or a gumball machine who grants us favors in exchange for our good behavior. Far from it. God graciously grants us his grace and mercy and deigns to listen to our requests despite our sin against him. So far from abandoning us, God has accomplished for us what matters most, even if we often take it for granted. God provided Israel the food and water they needed in the wilderness, and day by day, God does the same for us. So richly does God provide for us that we do not have to guess where our next meal will come from. That puts us among the most fortunate people to have ever inhabited planet Earth. Not only did God provide for Israel's material needs, but on Mount Sinai, he gave to them his law, showing them how he would have them live. What then does God require of us? The short answer is more than we can possibly do, as about which we'll hear more next week in the Ten Commandments. In our Gospel lesson, Jesus tells the story of a man with two sons. To the first, the man says, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. His son answers, I will not, but later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same. He answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Obedience is what God asks of us, beginning with belief. Not to earn our salvation, 
but in gratitude for it. We often put belief and obedience in two separate categories, as we also do with thought and action or word and deed. But when we listen to Jesus once he's finished his story, we hear him ask, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe him. Jesus is telling us that contrary to conventional wisdom, believing is a form of obedience, and faith is a form of action. I have a friend who suffers from chronic back pain, pain that is invisible to the general public. When I asked him once what people could do to help, he said, believe me. Wow, was that an eye-opener for me. What he wanted most of all was simply for people to believe that his pain was real, that he wasn't just faking it, despite us not being able to see it. And so too is believing a first step of grateful obedience to the God who has delivered us from sin and death and who continues to provide for us both materially and spiritually. Believing is not a substitute for serving our neighbors, but neither is it nothing. When Jesus tells the story of the man with the two sons, he highlights believing as a form of obedience in contrast to a mere pledge of obedience. Thanks be to God, who has died for us, loves us, cares for us, and remains with us despite our over-promising and under-believing. Thanks be to God, who in emptying himself, poured out his righteousness into us and took on himself our sin. And thanks be to God, who giving his life for us, has for us a new way of life rich in grace and gratitude, of believing in God who is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to work for his good pleasure.